What's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat, and today's episode's with Bobby Kim, also known as Bobby Hundreds, who is a designer, writer, photographer, and the co-founder of the iconic community-based streetwear brand, The Hundreds. In this episode, we go way back with Bobby to learn about his life growing up in the punk scene in Southern California, who and what his inspirations were, the struggles he faced as a closet artist who was forced down a path he wasn't particularly passionate about, the lawyer that helped change the trajectory of his life, the early days of building The Hundreds with his partner, Ben, how he defined success, everything he's working on now and what he's most excited about in the next few years. If you enjoy our conversation and want to learn more about Bobby's story and the hundreds, be sure to grab a copy of his new book. This is not a t-shirt everywhere. Books are found. Here we go. Well, Bobby, thank you for having us at the hundreds headquarters. I assume this is what it is. I mean, how big is this space? This space is 90,000 square feet. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. what I thought. I th- when we pulled up, I was house. like, Wow, either they have a part of it or they're making a lot of clothes. There's a lot of clothes being made. We are partners in some other brands as well. And so there's a run out of here. We own our print shop in the back. And so we print for everyone from us and younger streetwear brands to companies like Fashion Nova, merchandise for rappers. Um, it's all being done in the back. But yeah, I mean, everything is there's a there's a music studio in here. There's <laughs> our our customer service department in the back. There's a huge skate ramp. Um, it's we got to check like that a out. Gi- after. Giant fun factory. Yeah. Well, we got to check that place out after. If yeah, you, yeah, if yeah. Okay yeah. with that. Uh, well, you know, we like to start off with the very beginning. You know, when people didn't even know who you were, hmm. and so this is an opportunity for us to learn a little bit about you know what Bobby was like as a kid, and you know your family, and how you grew up, and how things were like. So, why don't you give us a little bit of a rundown? Uh, wow, where uh, do young we begin? Um, <laughs> uh, my earliest memories were of drawing. I was just always attracted to the arts, gravitated towards illustrating, reading Garfield comics. Calvin and Hobbes is how I learned to write and my humor. Um, was interested in fashion and style, but to the extent of I was really aware of brands. Like in the early 80s, mid-80s, would be Stussy, TNC Surf, Massimo, um, Maui and Sons, a lot of surf brands growing up in Southern California. Um, and I think I was into a lot of that stuff because I wanted to stand out. You know, I was a middle child and so I felt like a black sheep in my own home. Um, I'm Asian American, I'm Korean, uh, son of second generation, uh, son of Korean Im- immigrants. And so also from being within the context of my neighborhood, which was largely white and Latino not a big Asian community. I also felt like I didn't necessarily belong. So there were many ways that I was searching for some type of identity and belonging. Um, I thought it was in brands. I thought it was in fashion. I thought it was in skateboarding. Uh, I grew up in the hardcore punk scene. Um, But I was just like a really complicated kid, really angry, had a lot of temper issues, you know, got kicked out of school, got kicked out of class a lot, got into a lot of trouble, a lot of fights, um, more or less a bad kid. And um, it's funny because I was in therapy. I've been in therapy for many, many years, but I was in a session about a year and a half ago talking about how I was such a bad kid. And the therapist asked, why do you think you were such a bad kid? You always say that you're such a bad kid. And I was just like, well, this, this, and this, and that. And she's like, well, you have two sons now. If they were like that, would you consider them bad kids? I was like, no, I 
I would think they were awesome. <laughs> I would think that they were creative and artistic and rebellious and resistant, like all the things that I you were, celebrate. You were like imagining what other people thought of you and that's what you're Yeah, for. and it's something that I think came down on me from my parents or the way that authority was reacting to me and she was just like, so I think we can reshift that narrative of right. you weren't necessarily a bad kid, you just didn't fit within the framework of what your parents necessarily wanted of you or what your teachers wanted or what greater society thought, but in your brain you were doing the right thing. I was like, yeah, all the time, stirring up trouble, but in a way that I wanted to be disruptive. You know, I wanted to challenge the status quo. I wanted to break rules. And so um, I think I was just always built like that. You know, I'm hardwired for that, and um, it didn't. I didn't necessarily fit within compartments and boxes very well mm. i think in the year 2021 if i was a teenager today if i was a young person or younger person today i think the world would be a lot more accommodating to right. um you know like accepting who i was as a personality right. and my interests but growing up in the 80s being an asian american kid mm. you know just having like crazy hairstyles like wearing crazy clothes yeah i was more or less the bad kid. Who were you? I mean, was there anyone like you were inspired to or, or looked up to at that time? Yeah. I, I mean, as an artist, I really wanted to be like Jim Davis, you know, as a writer and a storyteller like Bill Watterson. And I was immersed in literature. So there was like even just, you know, young adult ch children's novels like Ramona Cleary, Ramona Quimby, the Beverly Cleary books. Um, just, but there was like a lot of authors that I looked up to. I really wanted to be a writer. Um, and then as I grew up and became a teenager, they were more or less like pro skaters, snowboarders, surfers, those types of people, musicians. But, you know, like all teenagers do, they look up to these teen icons, teen idols. Um, but for me, it was always artists and storytellers. You no, know, especially for artists and people who you mentioned, you know, you, you like drawing. Mm. I feel like a lot of people kind of have something when they're younger, they kind of express themselves in a certain way, whether, whether it's creatively or whatever, yeah. what have you, music, whatever, it could be anything. But maybe they just don't get the sort of positive like reinforcement from people around them, whether it's their parents or friends saying like, hey, you're actually freaking good at this. Yeah. Why don't you pursue this? So they kind of lose that. They lose that bug or whatever it is and they kind of go on a more, you know, quote unquote, conventional path. Yeah. And for for you, I'm curious, like, did you have people around you telling you, like, hey, you have a knack for this? Like, you have an yeah, eye for this? Yeah, I think it was evident to almost everyone around me that I was artistically inclined. And to my parents, who, again, were immigrants, uh, that was scary to them, right? They moved to this country, gave up everything, uh, really immigrated here with nothing in their pockets, didn't know the language or culture. And then here's one of their sons who is destined to be doomed, right? Like he's just going to end up dead in a gutter somewhere, pursuing a life in the arts, drawing pictures and cartoons. They're like, there's no future in this. You're a Korean-American kid. You're like an immigrant son. You know, you need to get a professional job. You need something secure and stable. You know, you're never going to be a movie star. You're never going to be a popular musician or a pro skateboarder. So become a lawyer, become a doctor, go to school, get good grades, right? The typical Asian-American immigrant story. Story. And so my parents were aware because both my parents are actually in themselves very creative and talented artists, but they were also never allowed to really pursue that path right. because those opportunities weren't afforded them yeah. the way that they were growing up in the war and, and amongst poverty. And so that wasn't really a viable option for me either. So they never gave me permission to do that. The kids around me, you know, my peers were always just like, hey, you're the artist guy. Can you draw on my skateboard? Can you draw like, can you draw a t-shirt for me? And I was always that guy, but I still had 
I think I had conditioned myself and trained myself over time to believe that I can never really have a future in this, right? Even my teachers, they were, you know, my guidance counselors, I was like, hey, I'm really interested in the arts. And they're like, look, that is not a really viable path. Like, that's pretty sketchy and it's kind of <laughs> unstable. You need to get like a right. secure job. Yep. Um, again, the 80s and the 90s, different I mentality. That. I remember right? that. Yeah. Right. We all remember that. Bobby, I'm curious, yeah. you know, just to play devil's advocate here, because I mean, both Pat and I come from immigrant, you know, families as well. And so yeah. that narrative that you just described is something that we've definitely heard. I think a lot of them still hear it today, right? And just to take their point of view, I don't necessarily disagree that they're right, right? With all things considered, they're really asking for their kids to have a steady job, yeah. a steady lifestyle, one that doesn't have all the ups and downs perhaps, right? You go to medical school, you become a doctor. I mean, you don't see a lot of doctors out of like business, right? I mean, right. they can find a job. Yeah. So, you know, why were you so certain or why were you so rebellious to them? Why did you think you were right? I mean, did you think that there was a part of you that was saying, well, I'm going to prove them wrong? <laughs> yeah, I think I was very much set up to prove them wrong. And I'm still very much like that. I, I don't know. I mean, that's a, there's a certain amount of bravado and arrogance that comes with um, a lot of this. And I just always knew that I was more, I was better apt to be an artist and to be a creative person. And, you know, while I was under their roof, I followed the rules, you know, but I always knew that once I got out, I was going to do what I wanted to do. Right. And um, and so, I don't know, that's just in my makeup, to be rebellious and to speak back and to fight back constantly. It's one of the mantras, actually, of the of the brand and the company is to fight back and to question, to challenge these things. And, you know, it made for being a pretty difficult child to raise, um, but that type of attitude, I think, has helped me to carve out a really specific niche in the world, right, where, um, you know, I exist with and uh, abide by my own rules and by my own perspective on things. And um, it's also allowed me to have a really unique vantage point on design and a, and a really um, individual, singular way of storytelling that I don't think is replicated much elsewhere. And it's because I kept challenging and kept working, working against and being the black sheep and, mm -hmm. and uh, not following the crowd. Before I forget, you brought up, you know, that some of this takes arrogance, right, or bravado. Mm. And I think a lot of people out there are arrogant, right, whether justifiably or unjustifiably so. But for those that haven't figured out whether they want to justify their arrogance or not yet, how do you channel that arrogance and make it something positive as opposed to something that's negative or something that's damaging not only to you but to others around you? Because it could very easily, right, let's, you know, Without getting political, yeah. Donald Trump, right? Arrogance <laughs> yeah, can sure. hurt a lot of, of people it can, or yeah. it can send the wrong messaging. How sure. do you turn that into a positive? Right. Um, I think I was just very blessed to be surrounded by um, a, a solid support system of friends and peers that kept me humble and in check. And uh, I'm one of the proudest people that I know to a fault. I have a gigantic ego, but my team here at work at the hundreds, my partner, Ben, uh, my children, my wife, my closest friends, they are constantly bringing me down to earth. And so I don't know how you go about and by your own volition find these people, but I was in a really lucky spot 
that they came to me and they've been able to help me. And they provide bumpers and rails so that I don't go way too far off base. But I think there is a temperance of humility that comes with the arrogance that you need in order to succeed, in order to still be grounded in some type of reality. Um, we want the ego. Like for me, I really celebrate and I want, you know, young people to listen to their ego, to, to be selfish in the work that they do because, you know, I don't want you to follow what anyone else has done before you. I want you to question a lot of that and challenge it and like carve out a space for yourself. Um, but you also need to know the rules before you, before you break the rules, right? Like that's one of the things that we live by here is like, to, in order to break the rules, you have to know them first. You know, you have to go through the steps. You have to earn your stripes. Um, you need to win the respect before you, uh, you know, before you break that respect. Like, all these things, like, that's just how we go about Like, there is a level of respect that also goes into what I'm saying, mm. you know. And so, like, even though I was really resistant and oppositional to my parents and to my teachers and to authority, um, I also gave them a, a sense of reverence, and I still do. And at the end of the day, to your point, Posh, like I still think my parents did the right thing, mm. you know. And they were scared immigrants again, like moving to this country with nothing, not knowing the language, not knowing how to survive. And then here's her kid who's growing up on Saturday morning cartoons who thinks he knows it all. It's just like, yo, slow down. You know, like you got to know the rules first before you break break the rules. And and I did that, you know. I paid my dues for 18, mm. 20 years, like being under their watch. And then when I was on my own, I was just like, now I'm going to do it the way that I think is best. And um, it did work out for me. Yeah. So um, I guess when it, when it comes time, you know, you're in high school and your friends are going to college, did you yeah. decide to go to college as well? Yeah, did you, I did go yeah. to college. There's this line in Fight Club where Brad Pitt is in the bathroom. I don't know if you guys have watched the film or read the book, yep. but um, he's just like, you know, you go to college and then what do I do now, dad? And now you get married and what are you doing? Get mm -hmm. kids and now where do you die, right? Yeah. So I was very much on that track <laughs> of autopilot. I'm going to go to high school, right? My parents were so domineering and so strict. I just kind of like listened to them at that right. point as far as life steps. They were like, you're going to go to college. And I was like, I don't really want to do it. You're going to college. And I'm like, all right. So like, I'll do it my way, but I'll go to college. <laughs> and then I went to UC San Diego. Um, I actually, I really disappointed my parents at that point because I'd been rejected from every Ivy League school. Um, I was accepted to Cal, the UC Berkeley and uh, UCLA and UC San Diego. And my parents gave up on me. That's how much of a disappointment I was to them. They I mean, which like, are like one of the best schools in the country. I thought they were yeah. great academic institutions and my parents were like you're a complete failure because you didn't get into stanford or harvard did they express that to you verbatim or did you feel that no they actually said that my okay. there was a point oh my where God. my mom was just like you got rejected by harvard and yale and amherst and all these schools and i was like yeah she's like it doesn't matter anymore you're kind of a lost cause so wow. i was like i'm gonna just choose where to go now i was accepted to berkeley i thought i was gonna go there and i decided against it at the last second because most of my friends up in berkeley were gutter punks and they lived on the street on telegraph and i was like if i go to school there I'm going to disappear. And then I was looking at UCLA and I didn't really know much about UCLA except I'd heard there were a lot of Koreans there and me being <laughs> Korean, I know this sounds strange, especially in this day and age, but I was like, I don't think I'm going to fit in very well because I am the world's worst Korean. You know, like I can't speak a language. I don't have a lot of Korean friends and I don't know if I'm going to feel very comfortable or feel very welcome I decided to go to UC San Diego because I knew that there were beaches, there was good skateboarding. 
Um, and, and that was, I'd never seen it before. And, and, and so that's what I did. Nice. So, uh, what did you like, what did you study? Were you doing art? Like what did, what was that kind of the, so I wanted to do art, right? So my entire life, because I was so driven by the arts and I was in, inspired to be an artist, my parents actually wouldn't let me take one art class. Right. So like I actually had to draw under the covers, like, Kids might remember growing up, like reading Playboy or comic books under the covers at night, like with a flashlight or you know yep. getting away with something, being surreptitious. Um, for me, it was drawing. You know, I had to draw and paint and color in hiding because my parents disagreed with my art so much. You were a closeted artist. I was a closet artist, and <laughs> they were like, "How do you keep getting good at art?" You know, and I was like, "You don't know." But for four hours a night, I'm up just drawing, and so even I kept that mindset even going to college. I was like, "I can't study art. Right. I'm going to have to do something." more serious, quote-unquote. And so um, very much like me, very much being a dilettante and a dabbler, you know, trying to be more of a polymath. I was, uh, I, w- there was a point where I was triple majoring and then I was like going for like a quadruple major and then I ended up with like a bunch of minors and like um, it was a mess. I was a part of, I went to UC San Diego, which is broken up in multiple colleges. I ended up being a part of every college. I knew almost everyone on campus and You're like, I'll just spend 10 years here just to I piss just, my parents but, off. And this was all within four years. Like somehow I was maxing. I don't remember how the credits went, but I was doing like double the credits of most students. I was just like, I want to learn everything. I want to meet everybody on this campus. Um, I'm going to just kind of do it my way. And so I studied everything from theater to psychology to uh, computing and the arts, which was like a fledgling graphic design program so I could learn how to illustrate on the computer um, to like media and communication um, but everything. But you must have been a pretty damn smart kid for even getting into all those colleges that you mentioned. I mean, and you talk like you're this bad kid, but you're this bad kid who's smart. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like, but I mean, a like, lot of bad uh, kids are smart and that, vice right, versa. Exactly, <laughs> right? And that's, and that's the point I was going to come yeah. to combined with the whole middle child thing. Like, yeah. Every middle child, not every middle child, but a lot of middle children that I know are that exact yes. description. Jan Brady. Right? Yeah. But I'm curious, like when you were like four or five or six years old, if you can't even remember that, you know what did that feel like? I mean, did you did you feel what did you feel? Because I don't know, I'm not. A I did. Child. You know, it's funny. You're like, if you can even remember, I can actually remember very young. I can remember back to even before I was four, back to when I was three. Um, and so I was reading before I went to kindergarten when I was five. I was reading novels when I was four and five, and so I ended up skipping. Um, first, I went to kindergarten and the teacher was just like, hey, like you don't even belong here. Just like skip straight ahead. Like I ended up just jumping to second grade after kindergarten. And I just like kind of coasted through. And I think that was part of the problem too was that I was right. bored, Yeah. right? So like a lot of smarter and quasi-intelligent creative kids, especially artist kids, they just get kind of bored like doing math problems, you know, doing algebra and stuff. Like I, I would intentionally fail things just because I wanted to, yeah. right? Like I could. And um, and so, yeah, like I would intentionally flunk out of classes. Like uh, I remember the first day of my AP literature class in sophomore year of high school, um, we had to do a test over all the summer reading we had done and write these essays for like an hour and a half. And the teacher specifically said, hey, you have to write it in pen. And I was just like, okay, so I'm going to write it in pencil. <laughs> and I did it. And I knew it the whole time that he was going to disqualify what I had done. And so I wrote the whole thing in pencil for an hour and a half. And it was the most thorough 
best better best written and a piece out of everyone in the entire class but he's just like yo you just you flunked you have to go to the office you can't be in my class anymore i'm like yeah but like that's yeah the way right um but i think i was always cognizant that i was maybe a little bit more advanced as far as like learning capabilities and whatnot but um i didn't want to be that different i kind of wanted to be cool Right, so again, why I, I, I wanted to wear cool fashion brands, listen to the right music, I was skating and stuff like that. But I think a lot of it was I was bored. I felt like I was unheard. I felt like um, I didn't really have a place in my own community or in my home. You know, I had a lot of trouble at home. I grew up in an abusive home, so suffering a lot of abuse and like having a lot of issues with my parents. Like I was just a very, very angry child, yeah. and um, still an angry adult in many ways, and still navigating what a lot of that is. Did you have any idea, like maybe when you were in high school before you even went to college or in college, of like what you would do after college or like no. what your adult life was going to look like? No, because I had so many different interests, right? Like I was saying in college, I studied a zillion things and I was an artist, but I wasn't ever really trained. Like I, to this day, I've still never taken an art class. I don't know the basics. Um, I've had to teach myself all the design programs my own way. Um, so I didn't know what viable paths there were for me. I wanted to be a writer and an author. I never took a writing class, um, but I've written a book now, you know, so I, I was like, I want to do all these things in photography and I want to work within skateboarding and streetwear and street culture. I want to be around musicians. I just kind of want to be around the scene and be around a lot of artists. How can I do that all in one place? And so this was in the late nineties, right? Where I'm really coming to terms with this, you know? getting internships at magazines where I could kind of do everything at once. Oh, I can be the photographer. I'll write the article. I'll also do the illustration. I'll do the painting for it, you know, as well. They're like, okay, so you're kind of a, you know, um, a multi-hyphenate, which in 2021, almost every child is a multi-hyphenate. Um, back then, everyone wasn't, right? Like most people were specialized in one thing. Mm-hmm. And so- like I just stapled the papers. That's all. That's yeah. All I <laughs> and so I didn't have any, I didn't think that there was anything I could do where I could combine all these interests, all the hyphens. And then the internet started. And the internet allowed me to put all of these interests and passions into one place. And so I wouldn't be where I am today without the technology. And that's like a really- wonderful eye-opening thing for me in life and especially when I talk to younger people who are like I have all these things I want to do or I have a really specific idea or like I don't really know what I want to do it and I'm like it might not even be you that's the problem perhaps the technology isn't there or maybe the opportunity or maybe the circumstances haven't aligned right in the world yet for you to be heard in in the right way but it's going to happen and it'll come and you just have to know where it is and for me that was blogging in the late 90s blogger.com blogspot.com launched it was a forum where I could write and storytell, uh, tell about my life, build the persona and life profile of who Bobby was. I could also feature my art and the paintings that I was working on every day, also all my photography as I would go around and kind of document my lifestyle on the scene. And then I was like, well, I can put this art onto T-shirts and now the T-shirts aren't just about the product. They're actually substantiated by some kind of experience or some kind of background story. And there's a narrative that goes with it. Um, mm-hmm. And these T-shirts can also be sold 
on the internet, on through the website. And so all those things happened because the World Wide Web came around. And how did you even, I mean, was it like everyone was using it or like did you? No, did you first not at across? all. I grew up writing and making a lot of zines. Like in the punk mm. scene, um, these staple photocopied zines were, a way, were independent media. It was a way to just be heard, right? A lot of punks like me were fringe outlier individuals who felt like, they weren't really being considered or their voice wasn't being amplified in a way that they needed to be, right? They weren't, they didn't have access to the mainstream media. They didn't have a giant platform. They didn't have the money or the notoriety for people to listen to what they had to say. And so punk rock zines were a way for you to independently publish your story and stories of others. Now, when blogging came around, it was zines, but free, right? Mm -hmm. So, and you had even large, longer runways. You had more mileage you can get out of your pieces. You had access to a bigger, wider audience. And so to me, it was like a beautiful thing that when blogging happened, it's actually how I feel about blockchain technology and NFTs now. If I can make a comparison, mm -hmm. you know, decades later, I feel the same way where I'm like, oh my gosh, the technology is opening up in a way where it's going to allow me to do the things I've always wanted to do. Mm. And that's what the internet was for me. And so I was very early on into on it in the late 90s, early 2000s. And by the time we started the brand, the hundreds in 2003, I said it has. it's imperative that the blog is a part of this brand. We want to centralize the entire concept of this clothing company around this ongoing living story that's happening on the internet. Mm -hmm. So before we kind of get into the hundreds, um, I know you decided to go to law school after uh, undergrad. Yeah. And uh, you ended up, uh, I think, working uh, at a law firm or for a lawyer for a bit and then decided it wasn't for you. Um, what kind of ultimately kind of led you to be like, you know what, I'm just now, now I'm, it's time for me to get off this path that I've, I've, you know, kind of been forced on <laughs> yeah. and go all off on my own. Like, how did that come together? Yeah. So after my first year of law school, law school's three years. After my first year, I had an internship at the LA Superior Court. And my first day of that summer internship, I was introduced to the research attorney who was going to be my mentor and kind of guide me through the law system and how that works. It was a guy by the name of Abe Edelman. He was a brilliant man. He was a genius. He was um, around his 40s. He looked like he was 80. He <laughs> um, had recently been diagnosed with cancer. And uh, a lot of people actually in the courthouse that they didn't know who he was thought he was like a homeless guy. He had like a long gray beard. He always smelled because he was kind of attached to these apparatuses. <laughs> um, he just dressed in sweats every day and he just kind of given up. He didn't care anymore. But the more established law veterans knew him. He was a legend. He had memorized the law library in the courthouse. Everyone was kind of threatened by the guy. And he had also uh, mentored so many interns in the courthouse over the years. And so the very first day he comes up to me, he's like, hey, you're my intern, you know, with all these other interns. And, you know, he kind of took a liking to me because he could tell I was just different, right? Like my hair looks like this, you know, I'm walking a certain way, my suit doesn't fit. And the entire summer he's teaching me how to do the law. And in the last few weeks of the internship, he actually wasn't around much because he was getting pretty ill. And I showed up on the last day and he's sitting there on a bench and he's talking to all the interns one by one, giving them kind of these exit reviews. Hey, you know, this is what I thought of your time here and this is what I think you could work on. And I'm the last one to sit down with him and I'm just like, hey man, how are you doing? He's just like, yeah, I'm not doing so hot, you know, but, you know, we had a really good time together. Uh, he said, you're going to be an incredible attorney. You're going to be very successful. And I was like, really? And he's just like, you're one of the brightest 
interns I've actually ever had in my time here in the courthouse. And I was just like, all right, cool. And he's just like, you're going to have it all, Bobby. You're going to have the cars. You're going to have the women, like both plural, <laughs> you know? And I was like, yes, like you're using plural. Not sign singular. me up, baby. Let's sign make it me up. Like, I, I think I verbatim said something like, sign me up, let's go. <laughs> and he was just like, but you should never be a lawyer. And I was like, wait, I'm sorry. I, maybe I misunderstood. You just told me that I'm going to be super successful. I'm going to have everything. I'm going to be very rich. And he's like, oh, yeah, you are. You're going to become a very powerful, powerful attorney, but you should never be a lawyer. He's like, your heart's not in it. And I'm like, sure it is. I just spent this entire summer with you, dude. I just killed every case. Like, I sat down with you. I, I busted out the best memos. And he's just like, no, no, no. Yeah, I know that. But you, your heart's not in it. He's like, what do we talk about every day when we go to lunch? And I was like, uh, he's just like, you take out your black book, which graffiti kids know this. It's just kind of like a sketchbook. But mm-hmm. you take out your, gra- your, your black book. You show me all your designs you're working on for this thing called the hundreds, which didn't exist yet. You're showing me the wireframing for the website that doesn't exist yet. You're talking about all these concepts and these blogging ideas and um, all these T-shirts that you want to make. And we never actually talk about work at lunch. <laughs> and then we come back from lunch and we dive back into work. And I was like... Wow, you're right. I guess you're right. And he's like, do that, Bobby. He's like, one day you're going to be 40 years old and you're going to wake up like me and you're going to be dying of cancer. And you don't want to spend your entire life doing something that you don't truly love. And he's like, for me, for him, he's like, the law was my love. He's like, I have no regrets. But you're going to wake up one day at 40 doing this. You're going to have regrets. And it was the first time that anyone had given me permission to do what I really wanted to do, Mm. right? He was like, it is completely open to you. You can do it. Why not? And I was like, well, because this, he's just like, what are you talking about? It's your life. You can do it. So he gave me permission to give myself permission, really, to venture forth on pursuing my creative path. And that was the first day, really, of the hundreds, in my opinion, because I went home and I dove right into it. And I finished law school the next two years after that. Uh, Abe actually ended up dying a few months after that conversation. Um, But I woke up last year, actually, in the middle of the pandemic, and I was 40 years old. And I was like, wow, that went by in a heartbeat, and Abe was entirely right. Yeah, You know, it was like a really powerful moment, just laying in bed and going... I used to be 23 and he was telling me this and I was like, that is so far away. Like Abe is dying at 40 and like, it really might as well be 80 to me, you know? Mm-hmm. And I was just like, thanks Abe. Like, you know, you got me here and I ended up doing something that I really love. I mean, yeah, that's a beyond moving story. I mean, all I could think about was, I, mean, I had a, I went, I did the same path, by the way. I went to law school and ended up not, not practicing. <laughs> Good so, for you. So I can definitely relate uh, to everything you said. Survivor. But funny enough, my story came, I had a very similar story. I'll make it quick. It was our orientation. It was before we even started school. Yeah. Like before law school even started. And I remember his name is Professor Gary Craig. I went to Loyola, which is down the street. That's where I went. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. So um, did you know Gary Craig? No. Okay. Yeah. So awesome, awesome guy. And it was the first day, literally, the day one of orientation. And we got to talking for about 15, 20 minutes. He said, why are you here? I said, I don't know. I want to be an attorney. You know, I want to be a criminal. At the time, I wanted to be a criminal defense attorney. He said, he's like, you're never going to practice law in your life. I was like, no, man. What do you mean? Like, I have a full ride to Loyola. Like, I'm a yeah. pretty good student. Like, I'm, I'm going to practice law. I'm going to be one of the greatest attorneys, like, that's come out of the school. He's like, you're not going to practice a single day of your life. He's like, you'll probably be one of the most 
well-known alumni of this school, but you're never going to practice. Wow. I said, okay, sure. Sure enough, never practiced a day in my life. Huh. Well, I haven't been successful yet, but you know, we'll get there. Hopefully. That's what I was going to say. I was like, That's trust part of me, the plan. if I had been a lawyer, yeah. like our, our one of our closest friends, we actually started the brand with, you went on to be a lawyer. Yep. Is, he makes like 10, 11 times the money that I'll ever see mm-hmm. and is super happy and good for him. Like, I never found that kind <laughs> of money. Right. Uh, but all about I think that. that's what it boils down that. to, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like, what do you care about? Right. Yeah. I yeah. Did, look, I always say, like, if you gave me a billion dollars, it would feel great. <laughs> I would disappear for probably a week yeah, and a but half. But you probably don't know the problems that come along with having a billion dollars. But really, you know where I would be with a billion dollars? I'd be right here. Yeah. I'd be sitting at this desk in Vernon having a conversation with you guys. There'd be a billion dollars out there somewhere. There <laughs> might be a yacht. But the yacht will be docked because there's nothing I'd rather do than be doing what I'm doing right now. Like yep. the day that I gave my, myself permission to do this, the day that we started making like one dollar in profit, mm-hmm. I was like, this might as well be a billion dollars mm-hmm. because that yeah. is priceless. So, right. Bobby, I'm curious. It's not, so, it, for you, it was kind of this like, I don't want to call it serendipity, but it kind of was like someone came into your life that really kind of set you on this path that you were kind of meant to be on yeah. forever. But no one was uh, people. It, I mean, it was just like things were holding you back, right? There were all these like forces against you. But for those that maybe haven't had that person come to them and kind of you know with like a reality check or whatever, saying like, "Hey, you should be doing this. Like, what are you doing? Like, don't do, don't go down this path that you don't even want to be on." How can people seek that out? How can how can people like you know kind of go about it? I guess, you know, like go about it themselves. I mean, is that even possible? Like does something have to happen? Does someone have to come into their life? Yeah. You know, it's like, it's um, tough. I don't think so. A lot of, as, as, you know, going off of what you were just saying, so much of this didn't actually even come from Abe, right? It was me giving myself permission. And mm-hmm. any everyone has the power and the ability and the capability to do that right now. Right. And it is allowing yourself to be curious. It's not even about diagnosing what the passion is. That's a lot of pressure to put on someone to be like, yo, what is your passion? For me, it was easy. I like drawing. I like art. I want to exist in the arts. Most people, they don't know what that is. Right. And so it's not about passion. It's about what are you curious about? What are you excited about? What do you just want to know more about? Just kind of follow that thread. And I make my story seem, I've told it enough times now, I've written a book, I make it seem like, oh, this epiphany happened, there was this milestone, and then that was it for the rest of my life, and I was set. I've consistently been on the same journey. There was no like huge spike in my life at that time, and all of a sudden I made a zillion dollars and I was happy. I'm consistently pursuing happiness. I'm consistently still trying to figure out what I want to do. Like I always tell these kids here that work for me, I'm like, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And everyone's like, but you've made it. You have a clothing company. And I'm like, look, it's all relative. I'm in the same spot you are. There are days where I'm sitting here, I'm like, no, this isn't it. I want to be this. I want to try that out, right? So the hundreds as a brand, as a company, is this amazing umbrella where it allows me to experiment, to be curious, to research different things. The last few months, it's been crypto stonks, NFTs, right? <laughs> like everyone else. Yeah. You know, last year, perhaps it was like trying to understand face masks. Like, I don't know what yeah. it was, but I right. can do that. And so my job is very fluid. My 
my career path is very fluid. I have no idea where I'm going to be in five years. I'm doing a lot of writing right now. I'm doing a lot of writing in Hollywood for TV and film. I might just become a full-time director at some point, and this might be a distant memory. Yeah. But I don't know what I'm going to be when I grow up. It's We're always in the process of becoming. We're always in the pursuit of... I don't know if I don't think I'll ever actually reach a destination because it's not about that. It's right. just the adventure. I'm having so much fun. Well, I feel like it's something that is sort of hardwired um, because it's kind of you know it's kind of like the type of person I feel like you are or someone like you is that mm. you know is kind of you know like okay we got here but now we're looking to the next level, yeah. the next level, next level. Like there's no end. There's no yeah, like there final no destination. End. Like de- maybe death is the final destination. Yeah. Maybe you're not. I don't know what happens after the, that. But, there's yeah. often the question of when did you know you made it, right? A lot of <clears throat> entrepreneurs get that in interviews. When did you know you made it? And I'm like, oh, I never made it. I hope I never make it because that means it's over. Like I don't yeah. want to make it anywhere. <laughs> like right. it's always like I want it to always be out of reach. Right. I always want to get to a place in the open door and be like, oh wait, there's more. Yeah. Oh wait, there's more. Right. There's so much. I could live a hundred lifetimes. I could have a hundred hours in the day. I'll only scrape the surface of everything that I want to do here. Yep. Right. Like that's why I'm so busy. That's why I'm so consumed all the time. Is because there's just so much I'm curious about. There's so many people I want to meet. There's so many places I want to go. There's so many things I want to try. See, I feel like that, if you have that like sort of excitement and things that you're looking yeah. forward to, I feel like that like that's what making it is. Because once you kind of lose, if you lose that spark, that if verb, you lose that yeah. passion, that thing, yeah. then it's kind of like shit. Like, fuck, life is boring. For <laughs> me, it is. I think yeah. some people, maybe most people are okay with there not being momentum like that. Mm-hmm. But for me, if I don't have momentum in my life, I get utterly depressed. Yep. And I'm very quick to analyze it. There will be moments where I'm just, you know, where you'll be sitting sometimes and you're just like, wow, that's just a wave of depression that's hitting me. Like, Mm -hmm, what's going mm -hmm, on? mm -hmm. And nine out of ten times for me, it's because I actually don't have something to work to or aspire towards. I'm bored, right? Like, I'm in a spot where I'm like, I feel like I'm not being useful. I feel like I'm kind of like not using my life in a a way where it's optimal. What do you do to get out of that? I'm curious because I I feel the same way a lot. Yeah. It's kind of like, I think think sometimes, you know, to your point on like, you know, kind of, it's like you kind of reflect in a way where like, oh shit, this is where I wanted to be Mm -hmm. for so long. And now that like I'm here, for example. Yeah. Why am I not happy? Like, why, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, what is it? And so, how do you kind of knock yourself back on well, track? Well, there's clearly a void in our lives that <laughs> it, it cannot be satiated by success or work. And yeah. so, I'm probably not the best person to speak <laughs> on that subject. But for you, just I for you, yeah. filmed the, I worked on a streetwear documentary, which actually never really even materialized, but it premiered at the LA Film Festival in 2017 and never came out to the public. Um, I worked on that doc for three or four years at that point, worked so hard on it, had, Dreaming of this day, of this, we had a red carpet, all this press, celebrities, the whole nine yards, friends, family there, and the movie started. And I told my wife, I was just like, I gotta, I gotta leave. And I sat at the bar and I got wasted. I drank like three scotches by myself, and I was just miserable because I had finished, I had got there. You know, when did you know you made it? Like I'd made it, like I'd gotten to the destination, and I hadn't set anything new up yet beyond right. it, and so. It's just like, it was crushing to me. And so this is a really, look, this is, word of advice, this is a very exhausting way to live. <laughs> I wish I wasn't built like this. Most of my friends who are very happy and live, live joyful and rich lives, they don't have this. <laughs> They're not burdened with this. They're just like, I go to work, I go home, I watch TV, I'm good, right? Yeah. A lot of the kids who work for me, I see them leave every day at 5.30, 6 o'clock, and I'm like, 
yo, what's up? What's next? And they're just like, I'm just going to go home, watch a movie, and you sit, sit, eat dinner. And I'm like, I wish I could do that. I get that. anxiety thinking about that. I know. Like, but I wish like, I could wow, do that. So I just, I'm just yeah. not built. And we're not built like you that. Know, and if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably not built yeah. like that either. You know, and, and some people might be, but I think it comes down to, and it boils down to from this conversation in terms of like, you know, do you need that moment in time? Do you need that person? I think that the key for me that I've tried to understand from even just doing this podcast for three and a half years is that you have to just be authentic, mm. right? Don't try to be someone who you're not. Yeah. Right? Don't be the person that your parents want you to be. Don't be the person your spouse wants you to be or your girlfriend wants you right. to be. Don't yeah. be the person that anybody else besides yourself wants you to be. Because as soon as you do that, as soon as you are not yourself, everything starts to fall apart. You are not going to be successful. Yeah. Or you're going to be successful and then get to a point where you are committing fraud, like, you know, <laughs> our number one guest <laughs> right. on the podcast. Yeah. Or several others that have been in the yeah. or do something, right? You're going to go down the wrong path. Yeah. Right? Yeah. At least when you're authentic and you have these anxieties and depressions and worries and anger, this mm. and that, you know that that's just, that's just you. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. Do, like, and have you felt that way? Have you felt that this is just you and I'm just doing me? Yeah, 100%. You know, this is why I'm sometimes actually conflicted doing interviews and podcasts like this because I realize that I'm giving a lot of people advice and telling them how I did it. Yeah. But it's how I did it. It's not how you do it. Right. It's not how you should do it. In fact, you should probably do the opposite of everything I'm saying. Because if what I'm saying has already happened, mm-hmm. we need a unique, fresh perspective. Like, I've already laid the groundwork for my path. You cannot replicate it. If you do, you're always going to be one step behind me. Mm. And you're not going to have a very fulfilling life. Um, but yeah, for me, I've just been very comfortable. I think more or less being me, mm-hmm. you know, and especially the older I get, which is one of the gifts of age, you just start realizing like all of your flaws, all your weaknesses, all the things that you used to hate or were ashamed of or you thought made you lesser than or what make you so special, right? And it's like this is why parents, like now that I'm a parent, I try to bestow that upon my kids, you know, they complain about certain things about them that make them weird or different or they're not good enough. And I'm like, but that's your greatest strength, man. Like even as a company, the things that we cannot do because we are not backed by money. It's still just Ben and I and our our own money. We rolled $300 of our own cash over and over and over into the company that it is today. And all those like all those weaknesses and deficiencies of us not having enough money made us be really resourceful, right? Made us be more creative. Like we were just scrappier. And so, like, through harder times, we have thicker skin. We can survive easier because we've never had to rely on anybody else. We've never had a safety net. Mm. Like, we had to be our own safety net. And so, I don't know. Like, the more I realize that as I get older and the things that I thought were always a problem with me or I was just like, oh, that person doesn't want to mess with us because we're not cool enough or we can't, you know, hit that collaboration because, like, the partner doesn't want to partner with us on it. I'm just like, good. Like, this is how it's supposed to be. Like, that actually adds to our story. That adds to who we are as a character, like, where we don't work with that person. We're all just telling these stories over time. Like, this is what my story looks like right now, and it's my story. Hmm. Yeah. So, the hundreds, right? <coughs> if, if people that might not know your story or sort of, like, the the kind of story behind it would look at it, you know, obviously be like, this is one of the most successful streetwear fashion brands ever, right? Like, you know, streetwear clothing, fashion but that's really kind of like from what I've heard, from what I've seen you talk about, it's not really like what the mission was uh, to create a clothing brand, right? It's, no. it's more than that. It's more building yeah. community. And so I'm curious, like from the beginning, how did you, what was kind of your approach to why you went about 
creating a community through a clothing brand and mm. how, how you went about creating the community? Well, now a lot of that was um, reverse engineered or just retroactively decided upon as far as the community stuff. I actually didn't realize that what this was all about was establishing community till I started writing my book. Mm. And for anyone who's ever written a book or a memoir, you're faced with a lot of difficult epiphanies, realizations that you never really wanted to face before about your life and what you're really here for and all that stuff. So I'm tasked with writing the story of my life and the business and how we created the hundreds. And halfway through the book, I'm writing this thing and I go, um, what am I even doing this for? Like, why do I have a clothing company? It's not for money. There's easier ways to make money. There's more money. I could be a lawyer somewhere. Like, it's not for glory. Like, that's very fleeting. I had glory when I was in my younger 20s. Like, I'm not very glorious anymore. So what is it really that I'm doing here? And what I realized is this whole project was about, as I was reading the stories that I've written, it was always about people. It was about these relationships we had built. And I was like, this was always a community. I was searching for belonging my whole life. And I didn't find it within my home, within my town, within my school. I didn't find it even within skateboarding and the hardcore punk scene, which I thought I had at the time. I didn't even find it within streetwear. When I found streetwear, I was like, it's so inclusive and welcoming. I'm finally in my community. I'm like, no, it's still not enough. I built the brand to be my own community, a place where there were like-minded people or people who could sympathize or empathize with me. And then I realized it was also a place that can highlight other people's issues where they could be heard, right? And so now I can share the stage. In fact, I can give the stage over to other people to build their own communities on. And so the whole thing was a vehicle for community. But when I was starting the brand with my friend Ben, it was about telling stories through art, putting it on T-shirts, getting my art seen because the galleries wouldn't accept me, um, and uh, really just being heard. I just want to be heard. Um, I've done a good job of that over the last 18 years of me being heard on the issues that are closest to me, on things that I felt like weren't being discussed in the larger mainstream. And now that I'm there and I feel like I've fulfilled that part of my desire, I want to be able to do that for other people. And so it's all now about just telling as many other people's stories as possible and using our platform to amplify that. Mm -hmm. When you started this in 2003, I mean, I assume you had no idea how to make clothing. I mean, right? I mean, you were an artist. You knew what to create, but you didn't necessarily know the business of fashion. Right. You know, talk to us. I know you mentioned, you know, being at the trade show in 2003. Talk to us a little bit about the early days so that people do understand what it was like. And maybe they do the opposite of what you did. Or maybe they do follow some of the things that you did if they are starting a business today. Yeah, 2003 was a really interesting time, especially in street fashion. Um, in the later 90s, uh, skateboarding, hip-hop clothes, which it was called at the time more urban wear, which was just code for black, um, <laughs> black culture, black clothing. Um, there was really, it was just kind of situated in a way where um, I remember one of our first trade shows, a buyer, a store buyer walked up to us and said, are you urban or are you skate? <laughs> which was code for are you for black kids or white kids? And then here I am. I'm a Korean American <laughs> kid. I look at Ben, he's a Persian Jew, you know, and then we're just like, where do we fit into that? I'm like, I listen to rap and I grew up skating. So, um, and it, that's a wild ass story for 2021 because teenagers today are again everything. I listen to everything. They really do listen to everything. Yeah. Back then, people were like, if you listen to heavy metal, 
you were a Hesher. If you were like into backpack rap, you were like an underground hip hop kid, and that was it. Um, and Ben and I were looking at the whole thing, going, "We never really neatly fit into either either of those things. And we don't want a brand that reflects that either. We want a brand that kind of celebrates everyone, includes everybody, including women, including people who listen to hip hop, rock, metal, collects comic books, also does drugs, also watches cool movies, isn't a Garfield like the way that I was, and appreciates good food." Because Ben and I are, again, Persian and Korean, and food is very important to us. Um, So all of these different elements, I'm like, why isn't there a brand that reflects all of that? And so I think we were kind of a response to what was going on. This happens in waves and trends in every industry and marketplace. There's an underground movement. There's a subculture. It gets capitalized upon companies blow up, you know, people get rich, they get fed, you know, these big businessmen get bloated. And then there's a new generation that comes in that wants to defy that, mm-hmm. question it, break it down and do it all over again. And that's what we were in 2003. Um, and then there was a point 10, 15 years later where then we were the big bad guys and the new generation was coming in being like, we want to destroy this. And it just keeps continuing to cycle. But um, but but yeah. to to that point though, like obviously there have been so many brands and streetwear companies and fashion companies that have come and gone so quickly. But yeah. you guys have sort of stood that test of time. And when it comes to building a community, I feel like there's something about being able to sort of always reinvent yourself as the, as people's. I mean, as the world changes, right? Yep. As people's like lives change, as culture changes. Has that been something that's been like very intentional by you guys? And how have you gone about doing that? Yeah. So I, one of my first public speaking engagements if the first ever was at UCLA and we were 25 years old I think at the time we'd <laughs> only been around for 2 years and we were very hot locally in LA everybody knew about the brand we were the cool new kids on the block and the the theater was packed and during the Q&A this guy stood up in the back and he said hey this is all great but how do you plan on staying relevant Ten years from now, twenty years from now, thirty years from now, it's fashion is fickle, and I was like, I have no idea how we're going to be able to do that. But up till this point, all I've tried to do is just be very honest and communicative with our customer and our community over and over and over again. I really don't try to sell you. I try to bring you along with me on my journey. When things are hard, I tell you it's hard. When our company is doing bad, I tell you it's doing bad. In 2015 or 16, I wrote an op-ed piece for Hypebeast where I talked about how our business was declining, how we were losing relevance and steam at the time. And internally, it caused a lot of ruckus. We actually had someone quit over it because they were like, why would you publicize this? This is embarrassing. And I was like, if I'm going to be very public about our victories and all the wins that we've had over the years and how we're so great, I also have to be honest when times are tough and we're weak, right? Like this is the comprehensive picture. The entire thing is about building trust in their relationships with our customers. I'm not just trying to make a quick $5 from them. I want them to stick around for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. Like I don't need 100 million followers. Like I just need really like 100. Like that are really, it's like that thousand follower rule mm-hmm. or a thousand customer rule. Like that really applies here in the way that we've built our brand. It was never meant for everybody. It was just meant for somebody, I always say. It was always meant for like specific people. Mm-hmm. And so um, I was honest with them all the way through up until that point for the first two years when I was 25. And I was like, as I change, I'm going to take them along with me on the journey. 
And I think they're going to be around because I'm their friend. And friends, they don't become irrelevant, right? Like friends aren't trendy. Real friends, like you stick with them through thick and thin. You know, they may change. They may listen to different music now. They may grow up and have kids. But the friendship is sturdy, right? And so I just want to build these really strong relationships. I'm not interested in just building a strong business. And so 18 years later, (laughs) here we still are. I believe that we have one of the thickest fan bases that have stayed with us from those early years of 2003. Some may have strayed along the way, grown up, you know, gotten real jobs, started wearing like Brooks Brothers suits. But then on the weekends, they like, they're like, I need a cool hoodie to wear. I'm going to go back to the hundreds. We saw a lot of that in the pandemic because it was a really uncertain time. So maybe you even experienced this where you were gravitating towards a lot of nostalgic Mm -hmm. things and brands. Um, and so we had a lot of customers even come back and they were like, look, there's a lot of cool, weird, new, flashy streetwear brands out there, but I grew up on you guys. This is a weird time. I'm kind of scared. I trust your product. You guys are always going to be here. And that's something I really, really pride myself on. And Ben and I prided the hundreds on is that we're just always going to be here. Like we were never trying to always be first place. I was like, I'm good with third place forever. I just always want to be in the conversation. You know, like if you're first place, you're going to go down at some point. You're going to get knocked off the pedestal. Like, just keep me in the conversation. We're still here. A generation later, it's a whole nother set of competitors. They disappear and go away, and then there's another set. And it's and still Bobby and Ben doing the hundreds every day out of, out of this building. Was there ever a point on this 18-year journey, or maybe several points or moments, that you thought, "This isn't what I should be doing"? Actually, maybe 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 I am on the wrong path. A hundred percent. I think you'd be crazy not to have those thoughts, especially on an 18-year journey. You can't be in an 18-year relationship with anything or anybody without having some kind of thoughts, right? Right. You're a complex human where you're going to be like, am I just doing the right, like, should I stay here? And I've had those many times. I'll have them many times a week. I still have them. There will be moments that flash up and I'm like, should I just leave? This is really hard. Mm -hmm. My personality is to just always run away. Again, I grew up in in an abusive home. And so I ran away a lot. And so when times get hard and difficult and there's really awkward, uncomfortable situations that happen, I want to run away. When Ben and I get into a fight, even when I'm in meetings and everybody's disagreeing with me, sometimes I just leave the room. I'll leave the office. I'll go home for the day. And it's really immature and childish that I do that. But it's like a weird defense mechanism that I have. And so there have been many challenging parts in my days, in my years of doing the hundreds, years, years long, like where we're in droughts, where I'm just like, I just want to pick up everything and bounce. Like just bail. I can start over somewhere else. And it's always humming in the back of my head. Mm -hmm. And thank God I have Ben, you know, who is the most loyal friend and partner who's just like, calm down. We're not going anywhere. (laughs) I'm in this for life. And I'm like... All right, man, me too. You know, so yeah. like if I didn't have that, I would have been long gone. But a lot of artists and designers, especially those who build businesses that end up becoming somewhat successful and somewhat notable, they go through this. And they have told me, some of the bigger bros and veterans in the industry have told me, like, don't run away. I know it's going to seem very tempting, but stick with it. And much of our success as a company has come just by way of us staying in the conversation. I'll be the first to admit we're not the most innovative in design. We're not like the coolest kids, but there's something to be said for having perfect attendance, right? <laughs> for being the Cal Ripken Jr. of <laughs> fashion where like you just consistently show up, you right. do the work, and people trust your brand. Bobby, you earlier talked about 
you know, wanting people to work here and for you and with you that have this ego that want to break the rules that are a little bit arrogant. But I'm curious, how do you scale ego, right? Like, how do you scale arrogance? Yeah. Because if everybody believes that they're like God's gift to the world, yeah. How? I mean, do you just have to keep hiring those types of people? I mean, and how do those people even work with one another? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I mean, ego. It's, it's talk about exhausting, you know, <laughs> fatigue like ways to live and build your lifestyle. Um, it, it, it's it's not recommended, but. Um, you know, again, I think it comes from the team, like just in the way that you hire. I am really blessed. Somehow we are consistently surrounded by the best support here in the office who see what the vision is, are on board for it, and see it through. Whether or not they agree with it or not, like they know that it's for the betterment of the company. You know, we have like a big thing here with respect. Like we have a no asshole policy here. Ben and I really try to treat everyone as family, you know, if not like a team. And so um, everyone is invested and we want to see everyone succeed in their own careers and paths here. And so like it's just it's just worked out really well. But I think it's because of that young energy that's always coming in. You know, we're a very young company, even though Ben and I keep getting it's that Matthew McConaughey quote of like we keep getting older and they stay the same age. Yeah. Like Ben and I keep getting older, we're like twice the age of some people who now work with us. Um, but, uh, it's a really cool, fun first career job for a lot of people in their twenties. It's kind of their college and they come in here and they bring their energy and they bring their insight and they're out in the scene and they're active and they're DJing the parties at night and they're partying. And then they come in here and they're like, this is what I saw. This is what I want to do. And I'm like, do it. Like, I want to give you the opportunity to flex that. Like, here's your freedom. Here's your, here's your permission to, to try do, you know, use our aesthetic, Use the tools that I gave you, but like, let me see it through your lens. The hundreds, as much as it's Ben and me and Ben and I and our stories, it's really an amalgamation of all our stories of whichever generation is working with us at that time. Mm -hmm. And so it's cool when you look back through the annals of the hundreds and you can see there's certain periods and seasons where it was that specific team. And that was a part of me too. You know, like that my, I look back on my life. I'm not going to remember clothes. <laughs> I'm not going to remember this really cool jacket I designed for spring 2020 or something like that. I don't remember the relationships. I don't remember the friends that I had. Like that's how I chronicle my journey with the hundreds is by these classifications and these chapters of people yep. that I got to spend and work with along the way. And like, I learned so much from these young people. It's been like a really, really incredible experience. I have like two questions, but they're kind of related to each other. Um, So I guess, so if you were just, obviously like getting started today right like you're yeah. the same kid like just misfit like you know uh, just loves doing you know being creative and artistic and um you know you're you're thinking about what to do maybe it's not clothing specifically but just like how to express yourself right yeah. um how do you how do you go about it in this day and age and i guess that kind of relates to my other question which was like what are you most excited about seeing in the next like five, 10 years. Cause you, you, I know you yeah. talked about blockchains and NFTs and all these like yeah. cool new things that are coming out that everyone's talking about. Um, <laughs> how, how, how do you, how do you kind of see your path if you were that kid now? Yeah. I get to actually try that exercise a lot because we are partners in younger brands. Mm -hmm. And so um, every day I work on other new companies. And we have a food festival that we started a couple of years ago. So I'm always participating in new companies and investing. I'm, a, I'm an investor too. So like I'll invest in a lot of startups. And I get to come in and see how they're doing it and how they would do it. So I get to kind of do it all over again almost every day. 
um, whether it's with a weed company or whether it's like an NFT marketplace or um, whether with a, it's another streetwear brand. And so um, the way that I'm, I'm always trying to go against, you know, again, like this is a part of my DNA. And so um, 10 years ago, I remember everyone starting a brand was like, we got to build an Instagram page for it today. It's like, I got to figure out a TikTok strategy. And I would always tell people, I'm like, do the exact opposite. Right. Um, when we were starting the company, uh, the web was really just really firing up. And even though we had this blog, um, a lot of advertising was going digital and it didn't resonate with me. And people were like, take out ads, like put them on, you know, these banners on websites and stuff. And I was like, I, I, what if we did the opposite? And we do like billboard. <laughs> do billboards, yeah. we paste <laughs> campaigns, um, flyers, you know, uh, stickers. And direct mail direct. to like people's houses. Right. And again, it was like, I don't need the whole world to see this stuff. Like, I just want someone getting off the on ramp, like off ramp, or like coming outside and seeing a flyer on their porch. Like, I want a deeper connection with that person. I don't want just like a cursory, like surface relationship with a customer. And so that dictated a lot of our success over the next few years because we were considered differently out there. We, people actually saw what we were doing and we stood out. You know, and so I would probably be doing the same thing today if everyone's on TikTok. And that is kind of what I do. Everyone's on TikTok, so I don't really do much TikTok, you know, and I still actually write long form blog entries in 2021. And I'll break them up and I'll post them across my social media, but I still have an active blog. And it doesn't make any sense to do it, but because I do it, people read my shit. Like when it pops up, they're like, Oh, he wrote something again. Let me sit down and read his Jerry Maguire manifesto. Um, but yeah, I'm always trying to zag where everyone's zigging. And so whatever's popular at the time, I probably am not really doing it. The NFT thing uh, is one of the probably the anomalies or the exceptions to that. But I was on it earlier than most. And my fascination and intrigue with NFTs goes beyond what this first iteration was in this first part of the year. It was always more about the blockchain technology and what we can do to set up the company on it. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's where I think I'm very excited about over the next 10 years. I think the way the pace of technology, um, the way that people are communicating right now, the way that youth are moving around, how comfortable they are in themselves – and feeling a little bit more liberated to express how they feel about things and being very open and honest. Um, There's a lot of gatekeeping institutions that are falling right now, right? A lot of people have realized the BS, whether it's in politics, the government, the media, the way that corporations are set up to keep people, certain people from certain people rich and certain people not rich, Um, dividing up communities, pitting communities against each other, whether it's regarded to race or socioeconomic status, right? Like we're all being heightened and sensitive and made aware of how a lot of these systems are set up as lies. And so um, that's another thing that I think is going to be really brilliant and beautiful. Another reason why I love NFTs and crypto and all that is because we can get past a lot of these gatekeeping lies. And um, I just want to get younger artists paid like that's you know i want everyone to make money like not just like a few people i I would like to spread that wealth around um and then work on the climate 
Like that's and I know I we were talking about it earlier. You mentioned like how you know kind of how you were back then. A lot more kids are like that now. Yeah. But do you think that like you know like do you think there's a world for everyone to be just like a creative and just like all the time like expressing like just like you no. know, like, does that does that work? Does that function? I don't think some people have a creative bone in their body. Right. Thank God. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like we need people to also be practical and to be you know like not creative and to be serious or whatever it is that they have to do. I think everyone plays a part. Um, I just want to support creative people if they want to be creative, Mm -hmm. you know, and if they want to make a living off of their passion and their arts, like let us help find a way in order for that to happen because why not? Right? Like why can't they make money off living off their arts? Why can't they build a career off of being creative? You know, I was told no for so long and then I proved everybody wrong. And anyone else who's feeling like, oh no, that's not an option for me, I'm like, you can prove them wrong too. Like it's very possible to do this. And today more than ever, you can make a living off of your art. You can make a living off of dreaming, off of being creative. And creative people, you will find a solution. You'll figure out a way, you know? (laughs) Even if if you have to go make money elsewhere, you have to go make money, you know, getting AMC stock or something like that and putting it back into your art. Like, you will find a way. That's what being creative is all about. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something earlier about, you know, when everybody's zigging, you're zagging. And it got me thinking about just, like, you know, connecting that to business, right? Which is which obviously uh, we're talking about today. Um, when I'm thinking about that, it's like you you don't want to follow the mainstream because that's where all the noise is, right? Right. And, and people think, okay, well, if the noise is there, that means that people are attracted to noise. Yeah. But then what that does is when there's noise, somewhere else is silent. Yes. And if there's just one person mm. loud in the silence, who's going to be heard, right? Would you rather compete and be with millions of people yeah. or be one out of a million? I mean – how have you seen that apply to the hundreds and other things that you've done? Yeah. And 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 should people consider that? And should people and how do people do that? I mean, what does that apply to, I guess generally speaking, yeah. besides social media? There's a term for this, right? It's the blue ocean yep. strategy. Blue ocean versus red ocean, yep. blue, Right? That's what it is. Um we were entirely built off that premise whether I knew there was this thing called <laughs> yeah. blue blue ocean strategy or not. Um but streetwear as an ecosystem in itself is established on this because we've always kind of existed in the shadows, the underground, right? The independent designers, the artists who were kind of not given the main stage. We've always been thriving in that position for many years. And then what happened in the mid-2000s and with the advent of blogging, and to be honest, I played a part in this, is that we broke mainstream, right? We got our clothing onto celebrities. We broadcasted it on the internet. We made stores that were welcoming to people. We were actually nice to the people who came into our stores as opposed to the streetwear generation before us, which would literally lock the door on you if they didn't think you were very cool. You know, it was very private, secret, handshake, handshake clubhouse type of vibe. And then in the 2000s, streetwear became this mainstream thing. The next generation after that, streetwear went high fashion. Then it became pop culture. And... Everyone started grabbing, and that's how it is today in 2021. Everyone is attracted to it. It is the mainstream form of fashion now. And I always say that streetwear, when we were starting out, people wore it because nobody else was wearing it. And now today, people wear it because everybody's wearing it. Mm -hmm. And I cannot judge one or the other. I'm not saying one is good or bad, but they're just two different perspectives on the same thing. 
And my thing with my, I'm so old school, my interpretation and the way that I value streetwear has always been that we still exist in, exist in the shadows. And so even though there's a spotlight now, there's a halo around a few designers in the mainstream and everyone is looking there and everyone's clamoring and tr- they're like moths attracted to that light. If you turn that light off and you can, your eyes adjust to the room, there's actually hundreds if not thousands of other brands out here that are actually doing really well that are contributing to the culture, that are building and enriching each other. And like, we're very comfortable being out here. And once in a while, one of them pops up and does its thing. But I like being in the shadows. Like, I don't even want that mainstream spotlight on me. Mm. It's not the pressure that I want. It's not the audience that I want. Um, But, you know, there is something to be said to moving to the quieter realms. There was a moment in streetwear, and now it's happening with crypto art and NFTs, where people are always just like, oh, it's dead, or it's on a downward trend. Today, Bloomberg wrote a piece about how NFTs are starting to quiet down finally. And I'm like, this is the moment, right? It's like, buy the dip. Like, this is the time to operate, you know, like, this is when it's going to be brilliant and bright because we are going to have to be creative and scrappy. We don't have the ease and ability of the mainstream spotlight on us anymore, right? Like, we don't have all the money flowing in. Like, you got to figure it out. And this is where we really thrive. In times of our own business and brand, when we were mainstream, popping off, top of the charts, humming, Jay-Z's wearing us, you know, Kanye's wearing us, and we're, like, the coolest and the best, the least creative seasons of my life the least happiest I've been with my work in my life, those were the moments that I really tried to leave Mm. where I was just like, they don't even need me in the driver's seat. This thing's on cruise control, right? Like no one needs me steering this boat. Like I can do whatever I want. It's still going to go straight. And then once the brand started dipping, once the business started changing, oh, Kanye doesn't think it's very cool anymore. No one's looking. Then everyone's like, hey, Bobby, can you get back in the pass in the in the driver's role? Can you take control of the ship? And I'm like, no problem. This is where I have fun. And like, let me work on it. Let me figure it out and get it back to where it was. And you know, that's at this point in my career and this stage of my life, that's where I really thrive. It's where I'm needed. I, I'm being creative. I'm playing the underdog. Like there have been you have to know how to toggle between being the underdog and fighting like a champion, right? Yeah. And there are moments where I fight like a champion, but I'm set up for life for being the underdog. And something on that note, something we like always like talk, talk about with guests that we've had on the show that are creatives or have built a business around their creativity is like how do you how do you build something that transcends you, right? Like at some yeah. point, if you do decide, you know, like it's time to step away. I'm, I have other things I want to do. Yeah. Like, you know, I still have X amount of years to live, and I want to do X, Y, and Z. How do you? How does something like the hundreds or just a brand that you build around your own creativity uh, continue to live on without yeah. without you? So, exactly, I don't want to be Steve Jobs, right? I don't want to leave the company one day and the whole thing collapse or just not feel the same way that it did. And it's intrinsically tied, the brand, the hundreds, is to me, Bobby Hundreds. It actually has a life of its own. And I think the reason why that's happened is because we were we were really intentional about it Um in the first five to 10 years, the whole thing was about Bobby and Ben, Bobby and Ben. It was like everyone reading my blog and this is like everything that Bobby's about. He loves Garfield, so we did a Garfield project. Like he loves Back to the Future, so we buy DeLorean, so they did a Back to the Future collaboration. And it was just like, it was all about Bobby's world, Bobby's universe. And that was what I was saying earlier about you build a brand, you start a business because you don't feel like you're being heard or considered. You don't see yourself out there. There's a void where you should be in the, in the universe. And then you build a brand and then all of a sudden people hear what you have to say. And then you feel satiated in that regard. And then you're like, wait, this was never what it was about. Mm. 
this whole thing was always about helping other people, right? It's that philanthropic part, that human, humanitarian part of everyone's career where they achieve the success and they get the fame and notoriety and they're like, mm, this isn't it. What this whole thing was about was helping other people. And so we've been very intentional over the last 10 years to use this platform to give it over to other people, whether it's uh, last year we worked for Indigenous People's Day with um, six different indigenous designers from around North America to talk about their causes and the plights of their communities. We just completely handed the company over to them. You know, we do that during BLM. We do that during Mental Health um, Month. Uh, this month, we're doing it for Asian Pacific Heritage, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. You know, we're doing a project where I'm basically giving the entire thing over to Jeremy Lin and being like, you know, what do you want to say with the platform and use our audience to do it. And so, as much as the brand Brand and the business is still um, tied, entwined to what Ben and I want and how we think all the time. It's really, again, a, a blend of everybody's voices here and the partners that we work with every day. And so it's a very fluid, it's just, a, it's an organism, it changes, it shapeshifts. And one day I will not be around, you know, one day Ben will not be around, but the hundreds is going to really belong to the community. Yeah. You know, early on in the podcast, I, I used to, Pat will remember this, obviously, but I used to ask guests if they were to create their own flavor of ice cream, what would it be? But I'm not going to ask that. You could answer <laughs> it. You could answer it. But I'm going to ask something even more interesting, knowing kind of who you are and what you've done. If, if you were given the opportunity, you know, Disney approaches you and says, we want you to create your own attraction mm. at Disneyland, at Disney World, all these other places, what would it be? Oh, wow. Well, Ben and I are working actually right now on, look, as an artist and a creator, everyone wants to be Walt Disney, right? That He has the trifecta. He had a way to experience his art through Disneyland and the parks, right? You can buy the art through consumer products and then you can watch and be entertained with it through the media and the film and the TV. And it's like, that's what every artist wants to do. I would love to have a Disneyland one day. We're working on a crypto version of that, like an NFT, you know, a digital metaverse version of that right now. Um, but I don't know if I would reinterpret anything that Walt Disney had done. My favorite park, my favorite land within Disneyland is Toontown. And I'm a kid forever. Saturday morning cartoon, you know, Garfield, Scooby-Doo. And I was always drawn to these cartoon houses in Toontown. And I just, uh, I dreamt that one day I would, my house would look like that, that I would have a cartoon <laughs> oven and a cartoon lamp. Yep. And um, I'm going to be able you to. You could still have that. I, mean, I could just... totally still have that. Um, <laughs> I think my neighbors would be pretty upset with me. Uh, I'd Who's probably bring their property value down in the neighborhood if I erected a house like that. Or, or just like zoning like issues. dramatically up, depending on where it is. Oh, right. <laughs> or maybe it would be, yeah. Um, but I think in the digital universe, we're going to be able to do it. Um, so something along those lines. Would that digital universe be at Disneyland? No, it would be our own version of Disneyland, okay. which people will see soon, where you can enter and play games and stuff. Interesting. Amazing. What flavor of ice cream would you create? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, I'm actually a purist, where I, I, even when we collaborate with other partners and brands, I don't like to change too much. There's a reason why you know, I want to even work with that partner to begin with. Um, so I just, I love mint chocolate chip ice cream. I don't know if I would change too much to to be honest. Like maybe the color, because the color always weirds me out. Mm. 
Sometimes it tastes a little too toothpastey to me, right. mint chocolate chip ice cream. Right. Um, but uh, a better version of that. You got to try the one from Strauss. I think it, it's really. Not, it's not green. It's yeah, white. the green kind of throws me off. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's white. Uh, it's white. white. Oh, That's fine. Yeah. I like it's a good that. one. Yeah. Well, this has been so fun, man. Thank you so much for hanging out with us. Dude, that was and, a blast. Uh, just sharing your story and all your wisdom. I know I know you kind of dive, dive deeper into it in your book, which is called This Is Not a T-Shirt. That's right. Um, so for those who want to, I guess, learn more about your story, they can buy it on Amazon? Yep. It's on Amazon. Awesome. Um, support independent bookstores, too. There's, It's there. And eventually, there'll be a digital copy on the... Hundreds Disneyland. Yes, there is a there is a digital. There's an audiobook too that I read. If you liked my voice for the last hour or so, and you want to listen to eight more hours of me talking, one of the best um, feedbacks notes I got on it. There was a kid who said. Uh, when you started reading your book, I couldn't stand your voice. And by the end of it, I didn't want to, I didn't want you to stop talking. And I was like, "Thanks, amazing, uh, great review." Hey, that's a good that's a good review. Yeah, I guess <laughs> we'll take it. Well, thank you so much. It's been so awesome just to hear Thanks, everything Tasha, about man. not only your journey but also the thinking behind it, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's why we launched the Founder Hour. It wasn't necessarily to learn about the hundreds because we can Google that, right? We can find out a lot of things about the business, but. For us, it's called the founder hour and not the company hour because we're really curious about that person, that individual, and how they even like exist in this world and how they came to be and where they started. And clearly your story, when you talk about what's going on now and what had happened as a kid, right, whether it was the positives or the negatives, it clearly has an impact, right? And again, it goes to the fact that you can't change your life. You can't change your history. It just, it is what it is. Whether it's good or bad, it is. Right? It's almost like had it not been the hundreds, it would have been something else, right? Right. 100%. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you again. Thank you both.